Welcome everyone to another edition of Security Management Highlights. Especially in Southeast Asia, you have criminals advertising capabilities, um, advertising their services on major US-based social media platforms. And you know, for more information, you know, hit me up outside of this platform. Security doesn't end at our sidewalk or our property line, that it, it's impacted by things that are going on around us. So if a parking lot four blocks away that's less expensive for a guest to park in is not safe, guests are not going to want to spend the higher cost of parking just to get closer. They're just not going to come. Thanks for joining me on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Adam Dara is the Director of Intelligence for Vigilante ATI. He is a former Russian specialist and political analyst for the U.S. government and holds both a bachelor and master's degree in Russian language and literature. Welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Hey, thanks, Chuck, for having me again. It's great to be here. Today's topic is organized crime post-COVID. We've really kind of created a whole new ecosystem, haven't we, for, for organized crime? And it's different in different continents and different countries. Tell us what's going on. Well, uh, you know... Uh, I would even like to add maybe perhaps one more qualifier, government-sponsored, not because of any ill intent or any anything on, on any government side. You know, the, these criminals are just standing by and taking taking advantage of, of loopholes in, in, in shortcomings in, our, in the way that we disseminate funds for, for COVID release, relief, tax relief. So, you know, what, what, what we saw at the very beginning were, was a very immature process from the federal government side, especially here in North America, Canada, and the United States, where... You know, the, um, the tried and true methods were very successful in the early stages of, of the COVID relief packages being disseminated. Uh, you, had, you had groups and individuals willing to spend quite a bit of money uh, to, to buy somebody's complete profile to trick, you know, to trick banks, to trick the IRS into disseminating COVID relief funds and PPP funds into these, into these accounts. So um, that, that slowed down quite a bit. Uh, people have been hip to it and have caught on to it, but boy, did, did the criminals really um, take advantage of that ecosystem. Now, did this change their organizational structure at all? Did they become uh, bigger, larger, more organized? How, how is that working? No, I, I feel like they just diversified their portfolio of bad guy-ness. Uh, so you, you really had um, some of the older guard uh, threat actors in the cyber underground, you know, who already had stashes and of of personally identifiable information. Uh, in, in underground parlance, they're called FULLS, F-U-L-L-Z, which means social security number, date of birth, name, address, phone number. They have the complete digital profile of an individual, and so they can assume that identity and trick banks, trick online platforms into at least one time uh, being able to divert funds from the real person to this made-up person who also appears real at first glance. So it was quite, it was quite effective in the, in the opening stages of COVID relief, for sure. Adam, we've been talking a lot about online crime, uh, you know, tied to COVID. How is this affecting the violence normally associated with organized crime? Well, yeah, that's kind of the uh, really unique, one of the unique things about this particular brand of cybercrime. You know, you have the more illicit stuff like drugs, uh, human trafficking, where traditionally it involves a lot of human-to-human interaction, like out of necessity. You need mules, you need people to, you need stash houses, you need other people to carry product to another person, to another house, to another location. You know, here... Uh, you know, we haven't seen any reports of crimes, uh, in-person physical violence, uh, only because this can all be done um, from from the comfort or discomfort of your of your dwelling. So you sit behind a keyboard and you 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 you. It's up to you to put together a, a convincing profile, buy from the right people, spend the money you need to spend, 
But at the end of the day, like it takes no human to human in-person contact, which is which is interesting because um, but 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 what a great thing. Right. Like what a great thing that I mean, for <laughs> for at least for all the hurt and pain they are causing, you know, I, I would even probably argue that they are, you know, in their own way, you know, like if you're the guy that was supposed to get that money, if you're the individual that was out of a job and you you were counting on that money to, as some bridge money to get you through Christmas, to get you through a couple months of rent, you know, I, I can only imagine what that did, the amount of stress that that induced uh, to the victim. So although there may not have been violence between criminals, uh, this may have been, may have been uh, perhaps some kindling for some already stressed out people who were looking for an excuse to blow off some steam. So um, definitely stressful times. And these type of criminal activities definitely don't help ease the tensions. Well, you know, that's an excellent point. It, to me, that is actually a form of aggression and violence. If I'm, if you're taking away my paycheck or my means to feed my family, that's not a win-win for humanity. So that's definitely a problem. So let's talk about uh, what's going on with social media. I found this really fascinating. I mean, social media has some crazy stuff on it, but I understand that some of these enterprises are actually putting up, you know, social media business pages, uh, uh, how to rip off uh, COVID checks 101, that sort of thing. Tell us what's going on with that. Well, there are some corners of, of social media that um, that are still uh, wide open from an enforcement perspective. Um, you know, I do have information that social media giants here in the United States are concerned about how their platforms are being abused. But for whatever reason, it's not a problem with a straightforward answer. It's quite complex. Uh, so, yeah, especially in Southeast Asia, you have criminals advertising capabilities, um, advertising their services on major U.S.-based social media platforms. And, you know, for more information, you know, hit me up outside of this platform. But it is still being used as a tool to help uh, flex your bona fides, uh, advertise what you're doing. And, you know, these are also desperate populations that have been disproportionately affected by the response to COVID. For example, you have places in the world that, you know, primarily depended on tourism for their economic sustainability, their economic growth and their economic prosperity. And when your government or when other governments of of, uh, of the world decide, hey, travel ban, in effect, I mean, that's 80% of your income gone overnight, just like that. So uh, in some of these more desperate situations, maybe they weren't criminals to begin with, but they've, they've had to turn to some of these more, to, to turn to criminal activity to you know, put food on their table to have something to do. Uh, so in, in some of these pockets, you know, that, that's what we're seeing. And, and so it all depends on what country they're in, um, the laws of that country, the level of cooperation with foreign uh, law enforcement agencies from North America, Europe. But definitely they, they, these more these more um, um, more desperate areas of the world, these disenfranchised populations are definitely looking to Western COVID relief packages uh, and and how to get as much as they can out of it to supplement income. So, you know, on the one hand, yes, it's still criminal activity. On the other hand, you know, it's like, well, well what do you do, you know, between now and tomorrow to get water, flush your toilet? You, you know what I mean? So um, it, it's, it's been very interesting to see how the ecosystems in some of these places have developed, matured, uh, their operational security practices increase. I mean, these once laughable parts of the world were, that were never taken seriously by other cyber criminals are now kind of they're getting mature and they're, they're learning. Very interesting points. Now, let's talk about law enforcement. Are they pivoting with these new realities? Are we keeping up to speed? I, you know, I always worry about this because you can never really stay ahead of these guys, but are we getting closer to keeping up with them at least? Boy, I sure hope so, Chuck. Um, 
you know, from, from what we've seen um, just through, through my job, you know, law enforcement is engaged uh, with, this, with this problem, especially now with media stories uh, coming out regularly, regularly about the different forms of cybercrime and, and to what extent there may have been a overwhelmingly massive amount of fraud associated with COVID relief payments and PPP included. So um, I think that uh, for what it's worth, I, I do think one, um, just because of the sheer nature of how we've learned and learned quickly, it's getting harder and harder for these guys to circumvent uh, safeguards that individual states have mandated since they were robbed blind in the opening stages of this. Number two, now that the media is, is and, well, now that there's been some, you know, after, after hours analysis and, and kind of a looking back and, and breathing a little bit, we are starting to see like, oh my goodness, there were there were some massive cases of fraud. So I'm I, I'm I'm certain that because of media pressure and because of their desire to, you know, help the American population, you know, um, you know, out with this, that uh, I think we'll see law enforcement take a different tack and, and and get after these guys. But again, you know, cyber criminals have already they've already cashed out at this point. So really, what you have are are, are kind of like latecomers and late late adoptees to the to the game. You know, one reason I really like speaking with you is when we talk about solutions, you always come up with something spot on, balanced in the middle. You made a very interesting point to me earlier that I hadn't thought about. We have a whole new group of people that have been put off because of COVID. They've lost livelihoods. They've lost income. And maybe they weren't criminals, you know, uh, a year ago, but they're kind of criminals now or they're doing what they have to do to feed their family and survive. Talk to me about some solutions here. What what might we look at as, as something to solve this? I don't think it's a law enforcement response. I think it's going to be a change in social structuring or the way we look at people or a humanitarian approach. Yeah, um, that's a, that's an excellent point. Um, I, you know, my, my hope is that is for more cross cross pollination of expertise. Um, I, I think it would be wise for the, for the federal government to, as appropriate and as needed, you know, reach out to the to cybersecurity specialists or, or these, you know, there are a lot of interesting people in the cybersecurity space uh, who specialize in really weird things. And they have a, a really specific set of expertise that perhaps law enforcement doesn't have a mature understanding of. Uh, but, but I think, you know, the federal government at, at some level needs to just kind of have these tiger teams of more agile bureaucrats uh, with, with, you know, with, with the mandate to, to be responsive, to be forward leaning, and and to some extent that already exists at some in some federal agencies, but I think you know starting to you know reach out and 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 reach out to the private sector, and for the private sector to reach out to the public sector and go, hey, like we're here for you. Like, do you want a briefing? We don't need to know your secrets. You know, th there's a reason there's a divide. You know, especially in, in in North American societies. You know, we we are mistrustful of too much cooperation, but which is great. However, um, you know. The federal government also needs to kind of lower its guard and say, hey, these guys don't necessarily want to know all of our secrets. They just want to give us a, an expert brief on, on some capabilities and, and get us smarter on things. And so I'd love to see an increase in, in that cross-pollination of expertise building and sharing, as well as you know, the federal government to uh, perhaps you know, develop these smaller, more agile teams uh, that are not so beholden to outdated uh, performance objectives. Mr. Adam Dar, he's the Director of Intelligence for Vigilante.io. Mr. Adam, as usual, Good stuff, balanced. You have solutions that make sense. Thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Good luck to you. To you as well, man. Super stoked to be here and, and hopefully come back another time and chat. Absolutely, man. Let's keep the dialogue going because we're going to need different solutions other than response on this. Thanks again. Take care.
Trail Melcher, CPP, is the Director of Security for the St. Louis Cardinals. Prior to joining the Cardinals, Phil was a security manager for the Department of Defense. Mr. Phil Melcher, CPP, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you. Very, very glad to be here. Now, we're going to talk about how COVID has impacted security for baseball and specifically your organization. And why I say specifically your organization is because when we did some pre-show discussion about this, I was very interested to find out a couple of facts about the St. Louis Cardinals. Your stadium is one of 10 venues, only 10 venues, that are certified under the Safety Act. And you guys had number two in attendance. And so now here we go from COVID with number two in attendance and this high-level security, and now the stadium's empty. This is a regional security issue where I was, would have thought it was kind of a Major League Baseball issue. Tell us about this. Very interesting. Well, it, it definitely impacted everybody, but the way stadiums came back and the way areas responded to uh, to COVID or the way, you know, uh, for, unfortunately, for lack of a better uh, term, the way politics handled it regionally has definitely impacted uh, everybody in a, in, a, in a different kind of way. So I think uh, that, that, that the impact was definitely felt, especially last season, with no guess whatsoever. It impacted us from, a, you know, how do you change, how do you change from going full security in a stadium and, and full employment with 2,700 employees to suddenly down to about 100 people potentially supporting what's going on for a baseball game. Um, that's, that's quite a dramatic change. And then with no guests, no revenue, it, the economic impacts, regionally the economic impacts are, you know, we're, we're definitely felt, uh, especially in, area, in an area like ours. All of that, that you know, from a security standpoint, had, had to be added to what I do in ensuring that. And then being part of, because of my access, close contact with the players, I'm then in a different, MLB breaks us down into different tiers. And those tiers, as a result, you know, forced me into bubbles. So I couldn't go out to restaurants. I couldn't go oh. to any large gathering places. I had to limit my public interactions and be much more standoffish, which is not necessarily my way. Right. Because I'm, I'm a very hands-on person. I'm a very, very, I like to be involved in things or at least overwatch things to make sure things are going well. And, and to be there is kind of a peacemaker and a def to diffuse situations and de-escalate situations and bring people down from perhaps what it what could turn into something ugly. And we we do a very good job of that. But it's uh, this dynamic of people, you know, finally feeling free and they're getting out and they're just like, Wah! and some of them are some of them have lost all their social graces. Um, <laughs> And now, uh, it's, now what capacity, you know, are, what capacity are you guys operating at? Like 50%? So we're at full capacity now. Oh, full capacity. Uh, we have okay. yet to, yeah. So we are at full capacity. We just went to that June 14th. So uh, prior to that, we were at about, uh, we were at 30,000, but we, we haven't hit it. You know, we haven't hit 30,000. Uh, you know, we've come close. We hit 24,000. But uh, you're talking about a stadium that's regularly forty to forty-five thousand every game, so you know we're definitely seeing that impact of the fear. And then economically, you know, because because it's a you know St. Louis is is a very urban area and has been hit really really hard. 
Um, and then some of the social unrest hit hard here. And, uh, you know, it, it, a lot of people are, you know, hesitant. And so, uh, you know, the, the politics doesn't help it. And, uh, and you know, so we are seeing a, a certain body of, uh, uh, you know, loyal and faithful coming back. But a lot just are not. And, uh, you know, you, you're seeing and that's also impacted because we're also a regional stadium because the St. Louis Cardinals historically prior to 1957, uh, when you had, you know, the Dodgers and the Giants move out west and then the Philadelphia, you know, the A's went from Philadelphia to, to Oakland. You know, you didn't have teams west of the St. Louis Cardinals. So we were a regional team, not just Missouri or Illinois. We were Arkansas. We were Tennessee. We were, you know, Wisconsin. We were Iowa. We were, you know, all the Indiana. We were broad because our radio station blasted to all these places so they could have some kind of a regional baseball team. And that's what we were. Um, and so I think a lot of the travel being cut down or, or had, being impacted also has impacted us. So, you know, there's a lot of different, a lot of different factors and, you know, just uh, it, it's, it, you know, trying to overcome that and get through that. You know, I think some in some instances, only time will help those things. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, not sitting on my duff from a security standpoint, always being ready for whether I have 25,000 or 45,000, you know, even last year with no guests, I was still doing stadium improvements, uh, you know, from a security perspective. So, you know, that's you know, it doesn't doesn't mean you take a break because there's less less agitators in the building. There's still people outside that could cause havoc. And I still have people, you know, leaving the bars late at night at three in the morning. They think they're going to climb my gates and run on the field. Let's talk about the layout of the stadium. You guys are actually in a neighborhood kind of associated with the downtown area. Tell us how that impacts how you view security and how you work with the community. It's a little different than, you know, Dodger Stadium that's up in the hills there. Right. Yeah, because we're 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 literally directly downtown. We're uh, stones throw from the from the Gateway Arch, you know, and some other, you know, from a federal building, you know, there's 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 some neighborhoods that are close in the vicinity and then we've also as an organization tried to revive some of the downtown area by building uh the first new uh, condominium tower downtown in like 25 years so you know we've been part of trying to re revitalize the downtown area plus uh unfortunately st louis st louis has a bad reputation for crime in the downtown area and in in the city as well so you know, trying to fight those stigmas along with COVID and everything else and trying to bring people back that potentially were afraid before and now bringing them back with this added, added uh, you know, uh, dark cloud over everybody's head, which was COVID. So uh, going from adding that to the mix has definitely not been, not been positive, but definitely you know, a challenge that we've been trying to take on and make sure that we we run a stadium. So during our gradual increments of, uh, of, of, of guests that we've allowed in the building, we made sure that uh, we 
tried to demonstrate all the time that, that we were running it safely, we're utilizing social distancing, utilizing uh, masks where it was appropriate and, and, and different types of policies and staggering people coming into the stadium or making sure people understood, hey, if you had, if you come in this gate, there's less crossover of guests from one end of the stadium to the other. So kind of limiting traffic in the concourses of people uh, interacting with each other. So, you know, it was all different kinds of plans that went into effect to make people feel safer, want to come back. I know St. Louis is a great baseball town and a great sports town. So bringing, bringing Cardinals fans back, you know, we thought was going to be perhaps a little bit easier, but there's, you know, there's been some challenges and we're definitely, we're definitely up to accepting that challenge and, and welcoming people back. Tell me how you reach out to the neighborhood and the other businesses. Since you're really part of the integra- integrated downtown environment, you're not just a standalone building doing your own security. Really, the neighborhood security is part of your issue. Restaurant security is part of your issue because your clients and, and people attending the stadium dine there before the game or after the game. How often and how much do you work with the adjoining businesses? And how does, how does that relationship help you run security for the stadium? Um, so I'm actually part of uh, two different committees that uh, one is directly related to downtown in that uh, we meet and discuss downtown security issues uh, on a weekly basis, uh, actually a couple of calls a week uh, where we discuss, you know, just in general security issues, crime issues, looking at trends, looking at what's happening, what can we do as partners and occupants down here and how we can be good neighbors to everybody else and kind of work together and perhaps come up with strategies that we can each look at so that, you know, it's it's a matter of looking at it that security doesn't end at our sidewalk or our property line, that it it's impacted by things that are going on around us. So if a parking lot four blocks away that's less expensive for a guest to park in is not safe, guests are not gonna wanna spend the higher cost of parking just to get closer, they're just not gonna come. So, you know, it, it, it's important to, to look broader and look beyond just your, 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 you know, the curb line, so to speak. Um, and then working with your business neighbors and business partners in, and, 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 and inviting them to events here at the stadium. I held, uh, you know, at least three or four times a year, I have uh, risk, assessment, risk assessment meetings where we discuss kind of a joint security posture to keeping guests safe and where I invite, you know, the local hotels, the parking lot managers, the local businesses, some of the office buildings, some of the, you know, some of the managers of some of these large, large uh, establishments and restaurants and, 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 and venues that are in the vicinity of the stadium to make sure that we're all on the same sheet of music so that we're all aware of the same threats. So we are all, all kind of have a shared shared stake in what goes on in the success of bringing potentially 45,000 people to Bush Stadium every night, um, which, is, which is ultimately our goal every single day. I really like this approach. It's, it's more humane, isn't it? Instead of just saying, here's the policies, here's the procedures, let's go follow that. We're making this a community effort. And when you invite people into look at your security program i'm certain i'm assuming you get some good feedback from times yeah we do and i mean it it, it goes to also you know because you're at downtown we're a downtown stadium we're in in an urban area 
we're dealing with problems that everybody faces. And unfortunately, you're dealing with homeless people. You're dealing with people that are dealing with uh, psychological issues or drug addiction or alcohol addiction. And so we've also teamed up with one of our local shelters here and one of our local treatment facilities to, instead of just contacting the police to go, hey, shoot these people away, kind of interacting with these people and developing a rapport with with folks so that it's a much more humane approach to what we're doing in kind of trying to help the th these people as opposed to just dealing with it strictly from a law enforcement basis, especially where that may not be the appropriate response. Um, sometimes it is, but in many instances it's not. So where we've been able to step away from just uh, calling calling for police assistance, we've called you know this this one center to to come or to provide us guidance or give us an assistance or send a vehicle over to help uh, certain you know the people that are that fall into that category to give them a hand and give them help. Talk to me about the tension in the air because of COVID. I think, from my perspective, anybody I talk to is at a different state of awareness, of readiness, of tension. It's just a stressful time. Have you seen a change in your procedures and process for this? Because everybody's kind of a, a little on edge, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. And then when you're thinking of, uh, well, when you're talking about professional sports, you're talking about making sure that the players are protected so that the, you know, ultimately the show must go on. So, you know, that's what they're coming to see. And if uh, the players are getting infected and the players are shut down, then there's no games and there's and 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 you know unfortunately we were one of the teams that got hit very hard last year with it and uh put us you know set us back for a couple of weeks uh to the point where we all we, we had to make up uh if i'm not mistaken almost uh, almost 14 games so uh you know that that definitely doesn't bode well for the club definitely doesn't bode well for continuing play on the field and then you know so how do you respond to that what are the actions you're going to take and major league baseball has provided uh, a great deal of guidance um for all the clubs to kind of institute rules of separation and bubbles and 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 quarantine type areas where you know outside outside guests can't go outside even even employees not all of the employees have access to where the players uh, are or the clubhouses or the field or any of those spots. So the dynamic has definitely changed in that respect as well. So, um, you know, the Cardinal staff in, 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 in total only fully returned to work at the stadium just less than a month ago. So even though baseball has been going on, not all the staff came back yet. So, you know, they, that new dynamic has, has kind of been created where you know, we figured out how to do it, not necessarily everything from the stadium. So, you know, that's been uh, that's definitely been been a change. But then at the same time, how do you do that and still maintain, you know, that interaction between guests and players and, you know, that that thrill of kids coming to the ballpark and running to the side of the field and holding a ball for for a player to autograph? You know, a lot of that was lost in, in, in COVID and, you know, a lot of the interaction, even in spring training, um, was lost as a result of it. And that close interaction, that close feeling and that that uh, that connection, I think, was was genuinely 
you know, hurt by, by, by COVID. And so I think a lot of people, you know, for better or for worse, either got used to going, I'm just going to watch it on TV. I'll be safer here. Or, you know, in, in many ways just went, uh, I'll go back when it's completely safe. You know, so you, you, some people are, you know, kind of hemming the, you know, biding their time on this, I think. Now, that's an excellent point about baseball. It does strike me as being a, an intimate game. Stadiums are intimate. You get close to the players. You can hear the sounds of it, the smells of it. It's, it is a unique sport that way. Are you finding the returning fans are different? To your point, we've lost a little of the connection, but is there any change in the behavior of the returning fans? It's hard to explain. I think I think COVID has impacted our our culture. I think it's impacted people because of that separation. I'm not a I'm a, you know look. Social media is a is a is a, is, a, is a necessary uh, is a necessary thing for people to connect, and I utilize it to connect with my old army buddies and old friends and things like that. Uh, other than that, I pretty much stay away from it, but that's, uh, that's just me. But a lot of people found solace in that, I think, and, and in, in, in being able to stay connected with others. Um, but I think that has inherent, inherent issues in that people lost that human interaction. And I think that's been, you know, sort of lost in the last year and a half and people are more, uh, seem to be seem to be kind of kind of defaulting to their social media persona as opposed to their in-person persona, which can be two dramatically different things. And uh, so, you know, I, I definitely I've seen definitely have seen a little bit more of an, a, of an aggressive posture in general, not 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 as the as the norm, but just I've seen that a lot more. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, I think communicating with people and talking to people has, you know, has been very helpful in the way we handle things at Bush Stadium with patience and tact and, and, and trying to communicate with folks has uh, definitely always been our, for, uh, you know, one of our fortes in the way we, uh, we do business with our guests. So, you know, we, we really give everybody the opportunity to, to fix things and correct things and, and uh, I think that's what makes it a, a good park, to, a good ballpark to come to, that it's family friendly and that, uh, you know, there's certain things we just we don't accept here at Bush Stadium. And that makes it a good environment to, to bring a family or to bring friends and to have a, a good, enjoyable time. Phil Moucher, CPP, speaking about security for the St. Louis Cardinals. Mr. Phil, excellent insights, my friend. I really took away a lot of information from this I hadn't thought about. And this human condition and, and, and being human to people is the key to success in this area for returning sports vengeance, I think. And I think, you're, I think you're hitting out of the ballpark, as they say, if you pardon my little pun there. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you very much.